This year, we've been focusing on the global pandemic and how cities are dealing, as well as the desperate need for racial justice and police reform. So we haven't had much time to spend with everyone's favorite topic, public transit in Toronto. That time is now. How was transit affected by COVID? And what happens to all our big pre-pandemic plans to expand the service? What happens now? I'm Glenn Bowerman. This is Spacing Radio. Please stand by. Okay, so uh, through the pandemic, uh, there's been a lot of uh, transit news that uh, we haven't really had time to focus uh, on on the podcast. Uh, a lot of other pressing issues, such as you know the actual fact of the global pandemic and uh, you know the very important uh, fight for civil rights and justice uh, all, all across North America. Um, but uh, now I think we've finally got a little moment to carve out to talk about transit issues in Toronto. Uh, so uh, I, I hope that the two of you can uh, introduce yourselves, uh, starting with Patricia. Uh, yes. Hi, I'm Patricia Wood. I'm a geography professor at York University. And uh, Matt? Hey, I'm Matt Elliott. I'm a uh, City Hall columnist for the Toronto Star, and I write a newsletter called City Hall Watcher that comes out every week looking at whatever's going on uh, at City Hall. Thank you both for uh, joining me. No problem at all. So I, I'm going to begin with something that uh, I think was a, a storyline maybe the last time we talked and, and all the way up to just before the pandemic dropped, which we've now got a little bit of a, an update on. And, and that is the, uh, the presto woes, you know, the, the continued uh, problems of uh, integrating this, this new technology uh, that was kind of foisted upon Toronto by the provincial government uh, under the wind government. Uh, and so now we're, we're kind of stuck with these presto cards and there have been a lot of hiccups along the way um, to the point where the TTC said, hey, we're losing money because of this and Metrolinks, you need to pay us. And so now it seems like that actually uh, might happen. Uh, Matt, your colleague Ben Spur reported that uh, Metrolinks is probably going to pay $38 million uh, to the TTC for a mix of uh, problems that arose from Presto, as well as uh, costs incurred with the uh, the Finch West LRT and the uh, Eglinton Crosstown project. Uh, yeah, so $38 million uh, as sort of a, sorry, here's some money. Um, <laughs> I don't know that it really, you know, there's no way to monetarily make up for the Presto system, which has taken, you know, more than a decade to implement. It's still not fully implemented. This DC is still, you know, accepting other fair media, despite the fact they would like to have moved over uh, entirely to the new systems, which has increased the TTC's cost a uh, billion dollars plus in various costs for the Presto project since its inception a long, long time ago. So, yeah, I do. I mean, getting $38 million is better than not getting $38 million. But I do think like the way that this Presto saga will ultimately end is not, you know, with some great reckoning. Uh, where some, you know, sort of does a, a real accounting of just how uh, ridiculous this whole process has been. It's just going to sort of peter out and we will accept that, you know, these are the smart fare cards we we got. And, uh, you know, it's very frustrating to think about alternatives and to look at, you know, how other cities have done it and think, you know, with the way technology is now, we could literally just be tapping our phones or our debit cards or credit cards against the readers and get a lot of that functionality without spending a million dollars and now spending all this time uh, trying to, to make this work on the TTC and other uh, transit services. Trisha, what's, what, what's your feeling on Presto? Uh, it's been a rocky road, but uh, you know, it, 
Is it working? Can it work? Well, as as Matt says, it's it's thirty eight million dollars or so um, in a it's a tiny, it's not even a splash, right? In a in a project that's cost a billion dollars, and the TTC had actually asked for I think sixty million dollars, right? And the agreement for the thirty eight or so has come out of the arbitration that the TTC and Metrolinx are in, and I think the other sad part of this saga is they're not done. This is just one agreement that they've reached, but they're still in arbitration over, over other issues. Like, so the, the relationship, um, isn't, uh, isn't on really solid ground yet, or I guess they're just still ongoing conflicts. Um, is Presto ever going to work? Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to be optimistic. It's, it's probably the worst implementation of a fair card system I can identify in the world, right. um, in terms of how long it's taken and how much it's gone over budget. Um, we were supposed to be fully presto every other form of payment gone uh, three years ago. And I don't believe that either the TTC or Metrolinx um, has a prediction as to when we're actually going to be there at the, at the moment. That that was a problem before the pandemic. It continues to be a problem. Now I, I want to speak to, uh, you know, the, the TTC in, in a world of COVID uh, specifically. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in a world where, uh, Ideally, people are wearing masks uh, when they're using uh, public transit. Uh, but we also saw a, an 85% ridership drop at uh, sort of the beginning of the pandemic, um, which then in turn, we saw reduced rates. We saw employee layoffs at the TTC. Um, current ridership is probably pegged around 35 to 40% of, of what it should be. So uh, what, uh, Tricia, starting with you, what, what's the impact on the, on the TTC there? Well, there's a huge financial impact, obviously, particularly because the TTC um, is so overly reliant uh, on the fare box for its revenue. Mm-hmm. There is, um, you know, an infusion of what is it, four hundred million dollars? It's supposed to be um, coming into the TTC, w- which will help. Um, it won't quite, it won't quite make up the difference, especially if we're thinking. Uh, you know, that we're possibly only going into a second wave now. Like we're, we're certainly not out of the pandemic. As you noted, we're still at, you know, 35 to 40% ridership. So right. we're not up to, which is, by the way, what the TTC says they think they can run safely, which mm-hmm. I think is absurdly low. Um, one of the things that's also, um, you know, a consequence or an impact of the pandemic on the TTC is a kind of fear of taking transit in a sense that it's unsafe. And that is, pretty groundless, uh, not just for Toronto, but worldwide. And so there's going to be a lingering effect, which will hit the, the fare box, but also the city's entire economy if people don't um, start taking the TTC again, uh, either now, but especially as we emerge from the pandemic. Yeah, you wrote in a spacing piece that, uh, you know, uh, places, I think you mentioned Korea, that were also dealing with the pandemic in, in a big, bad way. Uh, they they were still operating transit around sixty percent, and uh, as as far as anyone could tell, there was no contact tracing, um, you know, related to people riding public transit. Yeah, there have since been a couple of of really large studies, including one in China, that looked at uh, over seventy thousand riders. And I think it was actually on on trains, like commuter trains, rather than transit. Um, but it found looking at seventy two thousand cases. Um, it found less than 1% that it could possibly trace to riding the train. And I think that was also including a period before mask wearing was common, even in China. Um, Spain hasn't been able to find a single case. Uh, so even, I don't think Italy has either. Um, so even in places where 
the pandemic, you know, was, was really severe and widespread. If you look at the list of where people pick it up, transit is not on that list. And yet so many people, including politicians, uh, you know, continue to say uh, that, that this is a risk. There's no question that overcrowded anything is a risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where service needs to be brought up. But if the TTC is only aspiring you know, to somewhere between 30 and 40%, then it's not going to put on the service necessary, first of all, to get the crowding off the buses that we have now, um, but also to to be part of a, you know, a campaign to get people back on transit. Like people need to be saying that it's safe as well as the fact that we're making it safe because people have uh, clearly uh, a fear of it, which is just not supported by evidence. Right. Matt, uh, the uh, a June TTC report mentioned uh, a six hundred million dollar uh, they called a financial pressure by year end is what they're predicting. I don't know if that means exactly a, a deficit or just a smoldering crater in in their hopes and dreams for the year. But uh, um, you know, what, what does that tell you? And and what do we know about? Uh, is there federal uh, and provincial emergency operating funding coming, which is what the TTC asked for? Uh, Tricia mentioned uh, you know there's a kind of two phased. Um, kind of bailout thing uh, from, from the Ford government, I think. And uh, uh, I didn't get a chance to watch the throne speech. I don't know if there was any promises there about uh, bailing out uh, transit agencies across Canada. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got uh, about $400 million coming in uh, through what they're calling the safe restart agreement. And that is a mix of federal and provincial funds. Uh, you know, the actual year end deficit is probably going to be around $700 million. So. I'm no uh, mathematician, but uh, $400 million is less than $700 million. So there's there's still a remaining gap. And, uh, you know, they're, what the province has said, because they've been put in charge of doling out this money from this Safe Restart Fund, is there will be uh, some kind of phase two of funding that uh, they say will be available before the end of the year. But there are some strings attached. And one of the strings uh, attached, one of the, the ropes attached, is that they would like transit agencies to look at some of their routes with the lowest ridership and look <laughs> if there's a way to uh, swap out those transit routes with what they're calling microtransit. And from what I understand, that primarily would be, you know, looking at uh, rideshare services like Uber and seeing if there is a way to, uh, you know, pay for those uh, people to take Ubers or whatever instead of taking of us. Um, this is, uh, you know, not a uncontroversial idea. I think we talked about it on this podcast uh, the last time we did this. Uh, you know, uh, companies that are in the rideshare business are generally, uh, you know, big uh, VC funded companies uh, with some dubious labor practices. Um, and so, you know, there's the, the real question as to whether it is uh, ethical to look at uh, swapping transit service for something like that. And then there's just the, the question of, you know, it's it's a bit galling for the province to look at, you know, OK, we're dealing with a pandemic. The TTC is, you know, uh, needs a ton of money just to, to stay afloat. And instead of just, you know, providing that money and making sure that people will be able to rely on the transit they need, uh, suddenly there's this, hey, let's let's talk about uh, microtransit. <laughs> now seems like a great time to do that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see how uh you know, hard the provincial government pushes uh, the TTC on on this, you know, how much of a, a string it will end up being. Um, but, you know, I, I, it was one of those things where you just can't imagine that it was just going to go over smoothly. One of the other things that is part of that deal 
um, is that the province is saying that everybody, not just Toronto, but I think um, all of um, all of the municipalities in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area uh, have to participate in discussions about, I believe they call it, new possible governance structures hmm. between their transit agencies and Metrolinx also as a condition of the, I think, fairly small share that the province is contributing in terms of that emergency fund. So right. it's got a lot of strings attached. Yeah, I guess, uh, what, what's the saying? Uh, never waste a crisis, but uh, it, it seems a little bit, um, oh, just uh, cynical uh, to, for the provincial government to to use this uh, this pandemic as, as a way to uh, kind of hold municipalities hostage to, uh, uh, you know, to, to explore their own little peccadilloes. It's especially gone when you look at the history of it. I mean, the provincial government up until the mid-90s, you know, was a partner in funding transit operating costs in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that changed. And, you know, I, I know we're, we're all trying to still get over, you know, the Mike Harris years, but they were pretty pivotal, pivotal years. And and so you, you look at that and you think, like, this is not, you know, the provincial and even the federal government. This is not them coming in and being charitable. This is, you know, uh, should be a core part of what they do and what they're responsible for. So to A, sort of make the TTC wait as long as they did, it took way too long for any kind of funding commitment to materialize from either level of government. And then to, you know, attach strings to it, I think is just not something that we should be, you know, not something the mayor should be all effusively thanking uh, Premier Doug Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for. And it's not something that, uh, you know, we should be uh, as, as a city all, you know, thinking warm thoughts about. I think what concerns me too is that when you see these other conditions on transit funding, you realize again that the province's transit plan isn't so much a transit plan as it is, uh, you know, a, a, an economic development plan that doesn't necessarily have transit and the support of transit at the center of it. Um, you know, it is comfortable moving, you know, public dollars into um, private companies like Microtransit. Um, it is comfortable moving, uh, what was it, coming up with a $1.8 billion to, you know, bury one line. That's not about enhancing transit. It will actually serve less people. Um, and, and meanwhile, they're, they're cutting programs like the, the, well, it's the cities that fall there, but the fair pass program, like, do you know what I mean? There, there isn't, there isn't a program here that 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 is supporting transit and especially recognizing the role that transit and the mobility that transit enables um, will play in any economic recovery for the city and therefore the province. Um, it, it's just, you know what I mean? It, it doesn't seem to have getting people on transit and providing adequate, even good transit service at the heart of it. It's got all these other I don't want to say political games because I, I think actually even that's an exaggeration. It's just got all these other agendas. Right. And I'm glad we got to this because it was one of our, uh, I, I put out some, a call for questions on Twitter and, and my good friend, Liam Morris, uh, at Liam t- underscore Tosh uh, on Twitter, I did ask if, if the provincial government was really going to go through with this micro privatization. Um, there might be some solace in the wording of, uh, I think it was a letter that was, um, you know, sent, sent to the city of Toronto that, uh, it said that all governments must look into the 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 possibility of a partnership with a company like Uber. I don't know what that means. Like, it, if that means that the city manager can just 
tell the province to go get stuffed or, you know, kill it with fire. They're like, yeah, we looked at it and we decided that's ridiculous and we moved along. Yeah. But I think that's optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, it, it, is a, it is a potential thing that we really have to, a hoop we have to jump through, a, a bunch of municipalities have to jump through. Yeah, I think, I mean, even if, you know, they back off now, I think the fact that they decided to raise this during a, a pandemic and at a time when transit agencies are really, really hurting for cash shows that there's some people in the government that really think this is a, a good idea. And maybe they're looking at, you know, the experience in Innisfil, which had opted to go with a, a partnership with Uber over, you know, starting their own transit system. But I mean, there's a world of difference between, uh, you know, providing transit service in a, a town, a small town like Innisfil versus uh, a big city like Toronto. And, you know, I also think, you know, the the experiment in Innisfil is, is not at, at the point where you can call it a success. It's still evolving. And uh, I would definitely uh, wait to see how that's going to go. And at the same time, I, I think Toronto should be making its own decisions about how to operate its transit system um, because it, the TC knows who its riders are and has a better sense of things rather than somebody at Queen's Park who has this uh, you know idea for how they could save all this money if they just replace some buses with some Ubers. Yeah, I think that last that last comment is is really at the heart of what's going on too, which is the decision making um, is shifting and has already shifted um, in in terms of planning and now in terms possibly of of operations uh, from the city to the province. You know, we we had a great uh, debate and discussion over the the challenge of the the four government saying it wanted to upload the subway and then, you know, allegedly they didn't, but in practice through funding and through some of the legislation they've passed and agreements with the city um, in, in practice, they have, because I mean, the part of the upload that I think should have concerned us the most was exactly what Matt was saying, that the city and the TCC are in the best position to make long-term planning decisions about, you know, building, expanding the network and also around day-to-day -day operations. Uh, so losing that authority, that, you know, kind of governance shift would have been, you know, the worst part of the upload. Okay, so they didn't technically upload the subway, but in fact, through all these other agreements, they have taken over uh, quite a lot of, of planning and they've taken over projects entirely. Um, and they are now you know, sticking their finger in even some operations decisions. Right. And to kind of wrap up the, uh, the TTC, you know, response to COVID, uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, I, I mentioned there were layoffs. They're now starting to bring TTC uh, union members back to work. And, and we uh, reduced a bunch of lanes because there was such a, a drop in ridership. Then that started to, I think, trend back up to something more sustainable. Um, and so we're talking about, uh, you know, especially the need to increase and prioritize bus service. Um, so I was hoping we could talk about that. And, you know, is it complicated by, as I think Trisha mentioned, that we are kind of going into maybe what, what some are calling a second wave. So does that halt these plans or, or should we keep going going forward with, um, you know, kind of people need to get around still. And uh, buses seem to be a, a great way to do that, especially in the sort of inner suburbs. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I've been following closely is the fact that, okay, overall, uh, TTC ridership is uh, at about 41% of where it was before the pandemic. 
But if you actually zoom in on that number, you see that, you know, subway ridership is only back at about 34% of where it was before the pandemic. Bus ridership is at uh, 49%, about half of where it was uh, pre-COVID in March. So, you know, what we're seeing is bus ridership recover a lot faster than subway ridership. And that has all kinds of implications because it's really showing that the places where we built sort of the higher order transit, you know, the subways, uh, are the places where it turns out people are seem to be least reliant on using transit to get around. It's, it's the bus passengers that seem to be the ones who, before you know, others are are needing to get get back on the TTC to to get to work or to school or, or whatever uh, you know the reason for their trip is. Um, and that that is you know that should really make us think about our, our transit policy and how you know gentrification intersects with building uh, higher order transit and how do we get to the point where you know we're, we're building uh you know subways and lrts and making sure that you know what's not happening is we're chasing you know middle and low income people out of those neighborhoods and replacing them with uh, people who have higher incomes love the idea of living near a subway but when it comes times like this don't are kind of like first people who can sort of opt out of transit but that means you know they're just working at home or they uh, can walk everywhere or they are uh, you know more likely to have access to a car even so uh, you know I, I've been really fascinated to, to watch how this recovery is shaped I, I think it's really important to, to make a distinction between uh, the subway ridership and the bus ridership, because if you're just looking at buses, you're seeing a transit system that has really, you know, is already at 50%. And I would imagine that's going to continue to climb. If there is a second wave, uh, it'll really depend on, you know, less on the number of cases and more on whether there's a rehabilitation of a lockdown. But even then, you saw uh, in the early days of the pandemic, it was the bus ridership that held up the best uh, of all the modes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of the subway traffic, I think, as you mentioned there, Matt, is, um, you know, it's headed downtown um, and uh, it's a, there's a lot of office jobs where those people are now working at home. So they may well take transit again if they go to the office again, but they're the least likely to be, um, you know, commuting to, to work right now. Whereas, the, uh, you, yeah, you have a lot of people who are still working um, at their actual job site um, who are stuck on, on buses. I shouldn't say stuck on buses. Buses are a perfectly uh, reasonable <laughs> way to travel, you know, if, if service is adequate, uh, both in terms of timing and reliability and in, in terms of, of space. And we, we know that there's already some overcrowding. Um, one of the things that we can do is what the city is very timidly moving in the direction of, uh, you know, which is to prioritize transit um, on the streets through bus lanes, mm -hmm. um, which will speed up the the travel time of those buses. And so ideally you can move, you know, more people faster with the same number of buses. Hopefully you can um, give them all enough room. But, and I don't want to talk down at all the idea of bus lanes, I, I, I think they're good. I've been arguing for them for a long time. I think they're also one of the easiest, fastest, cheapest things that we can do to improve transit service in the city. Mm -hmm. um, they're not exciting and shiny, but they actually have a big impact, especially on people who rely on transit because they don't have other mobility options. Having said that, what the city is doing is really minimal 
in terms of, of the bus lanes. It's a, it's a very small set of, of um, projects and they're rolling them out one at a time. Uh, I think the first one's supposed to start, isn't it next month? Yeah. And then, you know, we're going to get another one maybe starting in January. And I, I would just really love to see the city be a lot bolder um, on that because it, it could make a big difference. And if we are tight for funds, which sometimes we are and sometimes we aren't, depending on the project, but generally we are. And it's a really good way to spend money um, that, that makes a, a big difference, you know, kind of per dollar spent. Yeah, I'm talking about uh, you know the people who rely on bus service. It's it's typically people in the the inner suburbs. Although uh, you know we have bus lines all, all throughout the city. But uh, Matt, you wrote you wrote a piece about uh, we've we've learned a lot about the city because of uh, the the sort of intense scrutiny that uh, COVID has has demanded of us. And uh, I think what we're seeing is is probably that uh, you know the the frontline workers, the people who have been having to still you know, take their lunch pail and go to work uh, every day throughout this whole pandemic, even during the lockdown and, and all of that, um, they're, they're getting to their jobs uh, from using buses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you were uh, worked in a healthcare setting, uh, you worked in a uh, industrial setting, you know, any, you think about the kinds of jobs that you can do at home, you know, and, and I'm very lucky. My job involves, you know, typing, 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 typing all day long. I can do that anywhere that has a keyboard. Um, whereas, you know, if you work in uh, an industrial, you know, setting, uh, you know, on an assembly line or uh, in an industrial kitchen or whatever, like you can't just do that in your apartment. Um, so, you know, we really saw in the COVID numbers in Toronto, uh, a real divide between, uh, you know, the people who tended to live in the downtown and middle of the city, uh, who uh, had much, much lower case rates, especially early on in terms of COVID, and also uh, were the people who were not, uh, you know, getting onto transit. And then you had uh, the inner suburbs, both, uh, you know, on the Etobicoke side and the Scarborough side, where uh, you saw higher COVID case rates and you saw uh, uh, crowded uh, bus routes come back uh, way faster than anywhere else. And this is a pattern that we just see consistently in all kinds of data that is presented by the city is that, you know, we tend to have a city that does a pretty good job of for whatever reason, taking care of people uh, up the middle of the city. But then when you look at the, the Northwest and the Northeast, it uh, is a totally different story. And, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on that. I mean, this is not new or novel, though. I mean, this existed, uh, you know, long before the pandemic in terms of inequality and where it exists. But I do hope, uh, probably optimistically, that this experience will uh, be, uh, you know, turn some lights on for some people and have them think you know, really hard about the kinds of policies and programs we should be looking at to, to solve some of this inequality. Uh, I'm going to move to a, to a listener question from Twitter, uh, Kevin Richardson, uh, at KO Richardson. Uh, he was asking, uh, what's happening with the Pearson Transit Hub? Um, so this is something that uh, Toronto Pearson is actively calling for. They, they want this to happen. Um, they're, they're calling it Union Station West with this idea of uh, that the airport is going to be a kind of junk juncture of uh you know like the finch west lrt that's proposed the eglinton crosstown extension west um the up the go the mississauga brt a bunch of different routes and they want it all to kind of converge at pearson is is there any movement on this and uh you know 
is that uh, kind of confused by the fact that we don't know when anyone will be really traveling uh, via air again? So the first thing I want to say is I hate the expression Union Station West. Yes, me too. <laughs> it, 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 and I wish they would stop using it, um, the, the airport folks themselves, because uh, it just misrepresents what the project is in so many ways. And it's only going to confuse people to call two different places that are several miles apart, you know, basically the same thing. Um, but yeah, it, it absolutely is in jeopardy. And it's interesting to see that happen, you know, as that's happening or as it's at risk, there's this discussion of actually spending more money to bury the LRT that would eventually get there mm-hmm. um, because it looks more and more like that line isn't happening at all. A friend of mine, a colleague who's a labor geographer and has been doing work with airport workers, uh, his understanding is that that, that line and that hub is, is not going ahead, certainly not as planned. You mean the Crosstown West extension? Yeah. The, the, so, yeah, sorry, it's the Egerton West extension that would go from, uh, what is it, West End um, to Renforth and then another extension to the airport. Um, so that's the one that there's the talk about spending more money to bury. But at the same time, the the sense seems to be that it isn't going to be built at all or certainly not prioritized because of the absolute crash in air travel and the reasonable fear that it, that isn't going to recover to pre-COVID level, levels anytime soon, um, that you're probably looking at at years. So I can see why the airport uh, would want it mm-hmm. because, you know, it improves access, which might help facilitate people um, traveling by air. Um, but it's it's very difficult to justify, um, I think it's a good line for a lot of network reasons, but it is very difficult to justify uh, when you know that ridership is going to be even lower than was projected in the in the first place. And some people have argued that um, the, the current plan um, didn't have ridership enough to justify it in, in the first place. So um, my understanding from my colleague is is that we should not be confident that that project is is going forward. And I, I'm not sure where that leaves the airport in terms of their plans for a hub that's connected not only to that line, but, you know, several other projects, um, because I know that they were, they were kind of going full steam ahead. It's hard too, because, you know, uh, it doesn't really have value, even though it straddles a bunch of municipalities, it doesn't really have the value of, of a, a connection to all these municipalities because an airport is really just, it's that one thing. It's, there's a big dead area and it's an airport and then there's nothing for miles except Courtyard Marriott's. It, it's interesting. It it could, like with, with a, a better design than some of what's planned, it could sort of serve as exactly that, a hub and a point of connection among municipalities as well as the destination of the airport. And it could also facilitate, you know, more... Um, minor kind of service destination stuff in the area. And there are, or I guess were, you know, 50,000 workers at the airport who would be very grateful to have a lot of shops and services nearby that were that were that accessible. So that's possible. The current design that I have seen uh, is much more oriented towards air travelers. And so it's about getting you to the airport and then, in fact, facilitating, you know, tr- um, transit in another sense, you know, your transition to your flight rather than it's, it's a, it's a transportation hub 
that also is at the airport, but that you can easily connect, you know, to go from Brampton to other parts of Mississauga or to, the, to Toronto or what have you. It isn't currently designed that way. That would have been a better way of thinking about it. Right. Yeah, for me, I mean, transit planning in Toronto has this like episodic quality to mm -hmm. it. And it's mm -hmm. like a like a, a procedural, like a law and order type situation where like every episode has the same basic plot, <laughs> except like you know, like Briscoe is a crime and then Briscoe catches the guy and there's a child and, you know, it's, but Law and Order is fun to watch. And this is, this is, Transit Planet in Toronto is, is generally not fun mm -hmm. to watch. Uh, so with uh, the Eglinton West LRT, I really feel like, you know, we've done the same basic story before uh, a couple of times in the sense that, you know, they, there is a train that goes to the airport already, an express train that goes to the airport already. Yep. Um, so, you know, they're making this argument that the Eglinton West LRT needs to go underground so it can be faster and have fewer stops so it can be faster and get people from, you know, wherever to the airport. And if that's to serve passengers, I mean, they, they have a train that does that. It could be improved in various ways. Um, it seems to me that the thing to do with the Eglinton West LRT would to be to, A, you know, not spend an extra $1.8 billion on the project when that could buy uh, at least one, maybe two other LRTs somewhere in the city that could really help people. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing would be, you know, you want to have more stops so that people who live along the route, uh, you know, can actually use this as a, a way to get from point A to point B, you sacrifice a little bit of speed. but you end up creating more access and serving more people, which seems like uh, an upside to, to me. And then, yeah, we have the, the exact same debate we had in Scarborough, where for whatever reason, uh, you know, often it has to do with uh, councillors and politicians who are very, very concerned that any kind of on-street uh, tracks will, you know, slow down car traffic. Uh, so, you know, no amount of money is too large to avoid that, uh, you know, terrible thing for, for car drivers. So we got to spend extra putting it underground. Um, and it is, it's very, very tiresome because, you know, like I said, we've seen this before, uh, you know, there are all kinds of reports uh, on the Eglinton West LRT over the years uh, that have looked at it and said, you know, this is a area of the city where there is a you know, wide road. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunity to build above ground and save some money and then, you know, use that money to build more transit. But here we are uh, again, looking at, uh, you know, the exact same episode, another rerun. It is exactly the same episode, because as you say, the city studied exactly this question, should they bury it? And they said no, because as you say, it's wide enough. And if we bury it, it will have fewer riders. And if we bury it, it will hurt more local businesses along the way. We, 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 yes, we have seen this show before. Mm -hmm. Apparently, we need to have the discussion yet again, because... By and large, wealthy neighborhoods that are along those areas have successfully pressured their city councillors and members of the provincial parliament uh, to argue that it will, yes, slow down drivers and get in the way and we can get to the airport a little bit faster. But that's not who it's meant to serve um, in terms of the airport. And, uh, you know, so, yes, exactly. We've seen this before. We know it's worth. We're going to do it again. And uh, I'm glad we got to that. Uh, shout out to at uh, catfish8888, uh, who asked exactly that. Why Why are we spending $1.8 to bury this, this line to the airport? Um, and that kind of, that, that takes us nicely into uh, the last sort of uh, theme, which is uh, big, big projects, uh, provincial priorities. Uh, so we, I don't think we need to say more about the Eglinton Crosstown West extension. Um, so 
we'll we'll start with the Ontario line, the the big centerpiece of uh, Doug Ford's uh, transit vision. Um, the most recent news was, uh, hey, uh, some stops have been identified. Um, you know, maybe even we might get to make use of the the secret uh, Queen Street uh, subway station that uh, was kind of roughed in in the fifties uh, and then uh, n- never never completed because uh, you know uh, people decided that that we needed a, a bluer line instead. Um, so that, that's all very exciting. Uh, still a really ambitious, uh, <laughs> really ambitious plan to, uh, to go full steam ahead on, uh, you know, when we're all, all levels of government are facing a massive, uh, financial deficit because of this pandemic. It's not like the, you know, some of the ideas for the Ontario line and the general idea of expanding, you know, the, the underground rail network. Uh, they're not the worst ideas. Are these Toronto's priorities? No, we've identified Toronto's priorities for these kinds of major projects. Um, they included uh, extending um, the crosstown um, at the eastern end. Um, they included uh, LRT along the waterfront. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are just completely off the table now because the province has reset priorities. So, I mean, I think this is, an interesting discussion. It was really cool to learn about the secret queen subway station. Um, but it, it is like Matt was saying, it, it is in some ways the same episode again and again, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really advance things to have this ping pong game of constantly resetting priorities, especially for major projects um, because they, they require long-term planning. So they are affected, you know, regularly and dramatically by changes in priorities, changes in government, changes in who's making the call. Yeah, I think with the Ontario line, I mean, now we've gotten, it's still kind of uh, amazing to me how little we know about the specifics of, of this line. I mean, we finally now have some, you know, subject to change station locations for part of the line. They've sort of been revealing it slowly in like kind of like a, like making a show of it. Like they did the west part of the line, they did the central part of the line this week and presumably Next week, we'll get the, the last bit, which was the most controversial bit uh, through uh, Leslieville on the east side of uh, the city. Um, so, you know, the way that they're, they're teasing things is, is a bit frustrating, but whatever, it's their show. Um, but uh, they have acknowledged now that the financial close on all the contracts for the Ontario line would be uh, at the earliest in fall 2022. So that would be after the next scheduled provincial election. So... Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I've I've seen the show enough times to to think, OK, like we have another election ahead of us before anything really gets moving on the Ontario line. And so I would not uh, bet on anything at this point. Um, like uh, Trisha said, uh, you know, there's some good ideas in the Ontario line, especially the, the northern extension. The city city did have that with the relief line. They had a, a northern extension uh, in the pipeline. But theoretically, the Ontario line accelerates that. but I, I think ultimately the Ontario line was a plan that was rolled out way, way half-baked. And the idea that it was going to be up and running by 2027 is just, it was always a fantasy. And now looking at where we are, it's uh, it almost, I would i would certainly bet on that not happening. So how this uh, plan evolves and if there's a government change, how that affects things is is all TBD. And uh, you know we've we've been talking around it and alluding to it, but uh, of course it wouldn't be a Toronto Transit panel if we didn't 
talk about the Scarborough subway extension, uh, if only briefly. Um, they, you know, I, I, I have no energy to debate this anymore, frankly, uh, you know, because I, I, I just, I, I don't, I've been watching this debate uh, pretty much my entire professional career, and I don't see the needle really moving. It, it seems like we're just going to do the damn thing just to do something. Um, that's if we find the money and if it's technically feasible. But uh, the the announcement, the most recent one, was that uh, you know they're they're putting out a request for proposal for uh, companies to actually do do the digging of of this three stop subway to Scarborough. We may actually start digging, but we've also broken ground on things that we then stopped, like uh, the Shepherd LRT. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and we filled in tunnels in the city for that matter. I can't really see it moving forward. I don't know where the money is going to come from um, for it to move forward in a, in a big way. Um, for sure, even if it does, it will go way over the budget that we've got now and it will go way over time because it's a real project and that's what happens and there's nothing about the way this project has been done, especially in terms of transparency of the planning and the cost um, and lack thereof. There's nothing to suggest that, that this is, you know, super well managed and we don't have to worry about overruns. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, maybe it will go forward and and be um, a a terrible waste of money and time. Um, But it's hard to see it actually getting anywhere and, and certainly lasting past a, a change of government. And in the meanwhile, um, at, at some point, the Scarborough RT, um, you know, will will actually have to stop running. Crumble um, into scale. <laughs> yeah, you know, basically. <laughs> and, and, and the situation that we already have right now, which is that Scarborough transit riders uh, are not especially well served, will only get worse. Mm-hmm. And they'll just be this, this, this gap. And I also have always feared that once the RT stops running and everything moves onto buses in the interim before anything else opens, um, that, you know, the, the buses are going to work really well and, and not cost a lot and, and so on. And that's actually going to facilitate, I think, slowing any other project down or even preventing it from, from reaching completion. And so then they wind up with actually less than they have right now and less than they would have had with an LRT that actually would already be open. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the Scarborough RT, you know, will at some one day just sort of disintegrate like a superhero at the end of Infinity War. It'll just sort of <laughs> crumble to dust and be gone. And, you know, we can start a pool on, on when that will be because... I mean, the thing was, at the end of its lifespan, uh, you know, like 15 years ago, they were talking about how it was getting close to the end of the road for, you know, the track for the Scarborough RT. Uh, so we're way past that now. They've done some refurbs to, to try to hold it together. Uh, but there's been days where there's literally been like holes uh, materializing in the side of it and on the floor and stuff like that. So, you know, one day they're going to wake up and realize that, you know, the the cost to keep this thing going is just, it's not doable. And they can't get the parts they need and all this stuff. And then, yeah, we're looking at uh, buses in Scarborough for however long they need to run buses in Scarborough until the subway theoretically opens. And, you know, not only will that, uh, you know, uh, as, as Trisha said, have some uh, potential for, you know, uh, it will affect Scarborough greatly. It'll also affect the rest of the city because the TDC will be scrambling to find buses that they can deploy in Scarborough to handle this ridership and you know the TTC is not flush with cash as we went over uh, mm-hmm. it takes time to procure uh, buses and have them delivered so you know I think the effect for 
you know, a, a period for sure, and maybe a long period, will be that service suffers on all bus routes across the city as you know TTC has to scramble to redeploy uh, vehicles. So you know, it, it's it's not just going to be limited to, to the Scarborough area, which has really you know had a, a real rough go of things as far as transit is concerned uh, for decades. Uh, it'll be the rest of the city as well that that feels the the pain. And and again, uh, I think for listeners, we, we we should say that all three of us are are in support of bus service. Uh, as we've said before, it's just uh, you know this this debate has been going on long enough that uh, I guess I should reiterate reiterate for people who are now just tuning in, uh, uh, who were maybe in you know junior high before uh, that uh, <laughs> you know we're we're only sad about this this idea of everyone stuck on buses because the alternative was going to be an LRT network, and they have rail now. Right. Those who take the RT now have a rail system. We don't usually replace rail with buses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually the, the demand is such that that, you know, rail accommodates it better. It, it does the RT, though small, like does have better capacity than a, than a bus. Um, and, and as Matt says, it's a really good point. Like the TTC has to come up with more buses for to really uh, accommodate that. And they're they're apparently strained for it now. Right. Um, and and a lot of what the um, the LRT would have served uh, is also um, travel within Scarborough. There's quite a lot of travel on transit and otherwise, you know, within Scarborough. It's not all going from Scarborough um, downtown, and right. it really isn't adequately supported. I know I've tried to to use it to to get around uh, within Scarborough, and it, it's very challenging. And the LRT was going to address that. Buses can also, and we should improve bus service in Scarborough. And that is a place, especially where there are plenty of wide roads with enough capacity to accommodate a a bus lane and give transit priority too, which would also improve bus service. But that's nowhere really in the plan that we're just going to be moving people off RT onto inadequate bus service while they wait till who knows when um, for allegedly a subway. So TLDR, the Scarborough subway debate, remains a bummer. <laughs> I like that our discussions about transit are so positive and sunny. <laughs> we're, we're just, uh, you know, you work with what you've got. <laughs> and so uh, the, the last provincial priority uh, that, that was named um, is uh, the young extension, the young subway extension. And I just, is, is the reason that we're talking about this just because it would serve areas that uh, traditionally vote for the Progressive Conservative Party? Or is there any real merit to doing this, uh, especially when we don't even know if we're going to, you know, have a relief line that will take the pressure off the uh, the existing uh, young line? My understanding is that it's um, the pressure is coming from developers um, along there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the votes, yes, I think that's part of it, um, but developers as well, which is, you know, another example of how transit planning is really development planning rather than having transit at, at the core. Um, the TTC cannot accommodate uh, an extension of the Young Line currently. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a much simpler plan, um, the the Young Line extension in up to Richmond Hill, than the Ontario or Relief Line or whatever it is. And as much as they say this one will not open before that one, I absolutely believe that they will open the young extension before we've even figured out where the Ontario line is going to go. Um, and in fact, somewhat ironically, they are now just um, just a few months ago talking about par- possibly putting some of that young line 
above ground. Um, and if they, if they do that, that makes the project even easier and faster. Right. And so it makes it all the more likely that it will open first. And that will be very challenging for the TTC. Yeah, my one of my concerns just generally that really ties into this is I worry that people are going to see, you know, what COVID has done to transit ridership and attitudes about transit and assume those are permanent shifts in status quo. So I could see a scenario where, you know, somebody looks at the ridership numbers for the young subway, you know, this year and maybe next year, maybe the year after. And it's like, well, you know, all those problems that we were having with overcrowding at Young and Bloor are solved now because ridership is lower. So, you know, now we don't need to worry about timing it. So we have the Ontario line or relief line or whatever they want to call it in place before we extend the Young line. And that would be just, a, I think, a titanic mistake. Um, you know, I do think that, you know, COVID is going to have impacts on the transit system, but I think we should work under the assumption that eventually we'll get back to the same uh, crowded status quo that we had before this. If, you know, some people try to argue otherwise and use numbers from, you know, this time in our lives to, to make that case, I'm going to be, you know, really giving them the side eye because I just, I think that's very, very dangerous thinking. Yeah, as well. I, I mean, uh, local politicians have raised a concern that, uh, you know, some, some people on council might uh, take this decrease in ridership as an excuse to, uh, you know, not not uh, provide the same amount of uh, TTC subsidy. Yeah, no. And then you end up with what they call a death spiral, which you know, is another cheery term. But <laughs> that's a real worry about, you know, we saw it in the 90s where, you know, transit funding was cut. And when you cut transit funding, service gets worse and people respond to that by, looking for alternatives, uh, like driving or buying a car instead of taking transit. And then ridership goes down further. So service gets cut further and then, you know, rinse and repeat, you end up in this cycle where there's no real way out of it. If you're just looking at ridership numbers, eventually a government has to come along and say, you know what, we're going to fund transit, uh, even though the ridership isn't there right now under the belief that people will come back if service is better. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a big concern because, you know, ultimately municipalities, I think are going to do their best, including Toronto, but they only have access to so much money through so many methods that they're allowed to use. So if it gets to the point where, you know, the, the bills are piling up and the cities can't pay and the provincial and federal governments are not as, uh, you know, willing to come with more money to offset what the TTC needs, then that, uh, that could be what we're looking at, the death spiral. I'm not even convinced that municipalities are going to do their best. I think there are, um, you know, councillors, I'm thinking obviously specifically of Toronto, but I know it's a problem elsewhere, but, you know, who, who city councillors who also look at it as an opportunity to withdraw funding from transit because ridership is, is down or they can just move other things in, into priority because of the crisis. And I, I think, in fact, that's already happened in Toronto, not just with the TTC and the way in which they've reduced service, although I know they've brought it almost back to normal, um, but with the the suspension of the fare pass system, which apparently actually happened in March, mm -hmm. that they stopped taking new applications. And so this, um, this program, which costs the city at most something like $600,000 a year, has been cut because according to the mayor, you know, we have to prioritize, I think he said like life and death decisions. Right. And like this is a this is a tiny amount of money that helps people who 
you know, have the, the lowest income, um, you know, who have the most mobility challenges and, and really rely on, on transit. And it isn't even that great a deal for them. Like the, the discounted pass is still significantly higher than the regular pass, for example, on the, the Montreal metro system. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a 30, 35 buck, you know, reduction on the monthly pass. And then there's also an individual, you know, ticket reduction if you have a single fare. But it, it's not a lot of money. It's not even that great of an anti-poverty program, but it's something. And it's actually being withdrawn. And it was withdrawn, like, immediately when the pandemic began, even before we knew that the numbers were going to, uh, crash or what the, the cost was going to be to the city and so on. So, I mean, I think there already is uh, a lot of, let me say, reluctance to really support transit the way it should be. And I completely agree with Matt. And I think we see signs already that people are going to look for excuses and, and use lower ridership numbers as some kind of new status quo or even even a desirable thing like to, you know, to keep the, the ridership low and the, the funding of, you know, even lower. Right. And it's insane in terms of um, thinking about auto congestion in the city that would result and also the general reduced mobility, reduced economic participation and how that would hurt uh, the economies of all the municipalities in the GTHA. And so, uh, you know, my, my big question, which none of us can really see that far into the future. So it um, it's, it's almost not worth asking, but I just wonder when we're talking about big projects, when every level of government has taken such a massive financial hit because of this pandemic, I, that's why I haven't really been tuning into these issues so much is because I'm, I'm just, is any of this going to happen? <laughs> um, seems difficult to say since we don't even know how long this is going to last. Yeah. I, but I also think like uh, that is, there's that uh, cynical pessimistic view, which, you know, might be uh, closer to what we'll get, but I do think that government should be looking at this as an opportunity. I mean, we are going to be in an era of very, very low interest rates for a long time. Uh, so debt to build transit projects is, is probably never going to be cheaper than it is going to be uh, for the next little while. So it, it's a time to seriously look at investing. And, you know, if you want to talk about an economic recovery out of this, you need to uh, have transit in this story. The idea that people are going to you know, to switch to driving into to downtown Toronto or all the industry will move to the suburbs or whatever, I think it's just, you know, that's just not the way it's going to, the recovery is going to happen. And if it does, then we'll end up, you know, having a situation where the next crisis, the ongoing crisis, the one that's, you know, parallel to this climate change uh, will be imperiled because we'll have more people on the road driving around, a lot more congestion, a lot more pollution. So, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, as, as much as we can, we push governments to not go right to austerity and think about how they can, you know, pay down their deficits and avoid debt because the priority is should, now should be building for, you know, something better after this because this is not going to last forever. We're going to need, uh, you know, a way to build a, a great city out of this. It's a shame that we can't start some of the projects, you know, immediately while some road congestion is still lower because I know that some parts of the Crosstown, for example, you know, actually um, proceeded a little bit more quickly because they they have less interference from from traffic. Um, but we can't seize the day in that way because these are major long term things. I completely agree that that for the reasons of the the climate crisis as well as this, um, uh, a need to 
really get as many people moving as possible, which can only be done with public transit um, in order to, you know, recover and restore uh, urban and then everybody else's economies. Um, you know, major transit projects are would, would be a smart move. Um, is that what will happen? It's hard to be optimistic. I, I think it will happen selectively in the Toronto area. It's, it's such a political football that it's hard to have confidence that anything that is decided will actually, you know, survive another round of elections. Um, but the other thing is as much as I support, uh, you know, these kind of transit mega projects, um, I'm a I'm a little cold on them at the moment, particularly under these circumstances, and and I'm not up for the battle sometimes anymore mm-hmm. because we don't do them well. And there is a lot of research now that tells you how you can do them well, so that they don't go madly over budget or even you know cost what the preliminary estimates are. Like they don't have to be outrageously expensive or as outrageously expensive as they are. They don't have to go over time. And we know that there are processes which include rigorous, transparent accountability early in the project. But until we do that, they're, they're kind of a waste of money. Um, they certainly are, you know, burning a lot of public funds. And so if on the one hand you're arguing that, you know, everybody's in debt and we have to cut costs or we have to be really careful about our money, then I'm only in favor of mega projects if we do them properly because, you can't on the one hand say, well, we have to be careful with money and then do bad mega projects, which just burn hundreds of millions or sometimes billions of dollars. So until we get to that place, and I'm, I'm not optimistic about getting to that place in this city or province anytime soon, what I'd rather see is, I guess, kind of micro transit projects, not micro transit, but um, you know, along the lines of better bus service, more buses, bus lanes, you know, that that kind of thing, really prioritizing it to really combat and push back on what we know is already happening, which is a rise in, um, you know, in driving people, changing their habits from, from something else to getting in the car. We have to, I think, actually actively push back on that. And we have to stop accommodating and privileging uh, automobile traffic. We have to actually challenge people who say, well, this is going to add a few minutes extra as they're arguing on Eglinton West, you know, if, you know, if I'm driving, it's going to take me more time. It's like, okay, so it takes you more time. Your auto travel is not going to be the priority in the city because we can't afford it. We can't afford it, you know, in terms of pollution, we can't afford it in terms of, you know, the inefficient use of space. We can't afford it. in the fact that we also have to find a place for you to park that thing, which is more inefficient use of space. Like, you know what I mean? We have to, it's not a question of kind of balancing it. We have to reset priorities and this is possibly an opportunity to do that. And we could actually make a bigger impact through arguments around transit prioritization because that's talking about the space of the street. And that's where you actually push back against cars and say it's it's not actually, you know, a, a place where we're going to prioritize your use of that space. We're going to prioritize transit and cycling and pedestrians. Well, I think that's a good place to leave off, uh, you know, uh... Listeners, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I don't think listeners tune into our, our kind of annual chats, uh, you know, for an optimistic uh, <laughs> outlook. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think we all enjoy, on some level, just uh, holding this pain together. <laughs> so, <laughs> a burden shared. Yeah, a burden That's shared. Right. Ma- many hands make light work. Um, so, with that said, um, uh, Trisha, where where can people find your work? 
well, I write a, an urban affairs column for Spacing on their website. Um, and you can find my general ranting on Twitter at uh, PKBWood. And uh, Matt? Uh, yeah, you can find me in the Toronto Star every week, usually on Tuesdays, talking about whatever the major thing that's going on is. Uh, and then my City Hall Watcher newsletter comes out every Monday. You can subscribe at cityhallwatcher.com. And I do some tweets at uh, Graphic Matt. And that is the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your fellow strap hangers from a safe distance through your mask. I make this show with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or you can email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-O-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. We have a brand new issue of Spacing Magazine on sale now, so please go get one of those. In the meantime, see you at the bus stop. Cheers.